Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Yes, Meredith. Jam on how to. Tame Gamoy, I guess to him. Inter, bam moy, bam moy. Gabra, ach, toshi, scared, agla arm, ta agla arm. Hi there, everyone, and welcome back to a new edition of the Irish Passport Half Pints. The extra content we make especially to thank our Patreon supporters. What you just heard there was a brief clip of Connor and Hannah two students of Irish who are taking advantage of the recent confinement measures to get in a bit of their language practice. If you don't speak any Gaelga, they ask each other how they are, and Connor replies that he's a bit scared, considering the rather anxiety-inducing circumstances we're all under right now. So far, maybe so unremarkable, you might think. But Connor and Hannah are not your typical Irish speakers. They both hail from the Protestant Unionist community in Northern Ireland, in which speaking or even recognising the Irish language is sometimes considered the ultimate taboo. recent half-pint on the Irish language rap group Kneecap, we introduced you to Jennifer Smith, a research on identity in Northern Ireland who has kindly agreed to share some of her reports with the Irish Passport listeners. Jennifer was visiting Belfast on a study trip when the lockdown suddenly descended on Europe, and she decided to use her time in confinement to get into some of the more complex issues of Northern Irish identity with her lockdown buddies. Belfast. I am currently sitting with Connor and Hannah, two friends of mine. We are in the village in South Belfast and we are in self-isolation amid the (laughs) COVID-19 panic. In Northern Ireland, one question which in much of the world can be quite simple can bring up a complex web of contested history, personal politics, lived experience, social class and cultural legacy. That question is... What nationality are you? What did you guys feel like growing up? Did you feel like Irish? Did you feel British? Did you feel a little both? I grew up sort of completely oblivious to national identity, really, as most kids do. You don't yeah. really, I was more concerned about my own sort of little bubble as opposed to what was going on in the world outside. I would have said I was Northern Irish. I remember one incident like in school whenever I was like eight. And talking about, we were learning about flags of the world and then talking about the flag from here and how it was a disputed thing and being like, that's weird, but not really thinking that too much about it. National identity in Northern Ireland is subject to a whole host of complicating factors. First, there is the inherent problem of national identity within the United Kingdom in general, something that Scottish and Welsh listeners know all too much about. The UK is a union of four very different territories each of them with their own complicated and long histories of nationhood. But the UK is also commonly understood in terms of a single country, 
meaning that national identity in Scotland, Wales, England and Northern Ireland can be a decidedly ambiguous matter. For centuries after the establishment of the Union, there was a concerted cultural push for people in all the constituent territories to replace their national identity with a broader British identity. More recently, the establishment of devolved parliaments in every constituent territory except for England has highlighted how fragmented that notion of Britishness can be in very real terms. The Brexit referendum of 2016, of course, underlined this fragmentation in very stark terms. Not only did it rekindle the issue of Scottish or Northern Irish secession from the Union, it also stirred up feelings of alienation in England, which, without a devolved parliament of its own, is strangely and somewhat ironically removed from the full extent of modern British identity. Indeed, it could be said that the success of Britishness as a notion depends on its ability to exist side by side with more specifically Scottish, English, Welsh or Northern Irish identities. But that symbiosis is quickly shifting, and it's shifting all the time. According to the BBC, 58% of Welsh people now identify as Welsh only, 60% as English only, and a whopping 62% as Scottish only. Just think then how much more complicated this can become in a place like Northern Ireland. Since its establishment 100 years ago, Northern Ireland has been a contested territory, with a significant proportion of the population not recognising the jurisdiction at all. As we heard in Jennifer's last report, some Republicans refuse even to use the name Northern Ireland, preferring to refer to the territory as the Six Counties. And not only do people in Northern Ireland have to grapple with a complex UK identity from the East, they also have to deal with an equally complex Irish identity as it exists in the South. There are currently two parallel interpretations of Irishness. One describes citizenship of the Irish Republic, whose official name of course is just Ireland. The other describes an identity shared across the island of Ireland, including the part that remains under UK control. But it doesn't end there. For lots of people on both sides of the border, that second interpretation of an all-island Irishness is the only acceptable one. They see the Southern Republic as being somewhat illegitimate, so long as it is partitioned from the six northern counties. At the same time, just as Northern Ireland has developed a distinct culture over the 100 years since partition, the Southern Republic has also developed a sense of identity that, in many ways, has become removed from the North. Both parts of the island experienced the 20th century in radically different ways, and many in Northern Ireland who identify as Irish are still aware that those on the other side of the border might not always share their experience of national identity. In the 2011 census, 48% of people in Northern Ireland identified as British, against 28% who identified as Irish. But by far the most interesting statistic in that census was the 29% who identified as Northern Irish, almost a third of all people in the territory. Just like identities in Scotland or Wales, of course, these identities can be shared to differing degrees, and people can feel British, Irish and Northern Irish at the same time. The Good Friday Agreement, meanwhile, provided very real foundations for this complex sense of identity. Everyone in Northern Ireland now has the legal right to citizenship of the UK, of the Republic, or of both. And it was just around the time that this agreement was signed that Connor and Hannah were born. Do you feel like growing up after the Good Friday Agreement was sort of um, the divisions were not as strong? in your lifetime as opposed to maybe your parents' lifetimes? 
growing up in a small town, I know my mum and dad made an effort to keep us away from it because, mm-hmm. like, Dromore is loyal. <laughs> like, it is a an orange town and it has very proud of it. So, like, I remember asking dad what that meant when there was, like, takes out written on the wall right. because I didn't know what a take was. The word tag, by the way, is a slur for Irish Catholics or nationalists in Northern Ireland. It comes from the Irish name Tig, which was once a common boy's name and is actually the Gaelic equivalent most used for my own name, Tim. It's similar to other slurs like Paddy or Mick, which have been used to belittle Irish people across the English-speaking world. Today, the term tag has gathered some very violent connotations, with the slogan, kill all tags, being a common feature of graffiti or effigies on bonfires in pro-British areas. Nationalists, by the way, use the word Hun, as in Attila the Hun, in a similar sense to disparage their unionist neighbours. That's not a word I'd heard. Right. And like, I was 10, you know, and he was like, oh, that's something you should never say. Right. And that was it. But so that was the same word as like, the F word or something. It was like, right. just don't say it. Right. So like, it was a concerted effort to keep us. I don't know if it was so much... When the Good Friday run happened, like that was a big thing for both mom and dad and their political lives. All of us, as like the four boys, were kind of raised so that we could see the benefits of that. So like we're sent to school, but we also went and did like GAA camps over the summer. Like we did the cool camps that they run. From a young age, we were always at least given some way of saying not necessarily because you weren't aware of the other tradition, but you were doing things and looking back on it. That was right. mom and dad making the effort yeah, to yeah. cross the divide you weren't even aware was there until like secondary school, where it becomes a bit more of a a yeah. talking point, you know? Yeah. Not being aware of the other tradition is one fascinating byproduct of the community segregation that grew in Northern Ireland over the course of the Troubles. And people who grew up on either side of the divide will commonly say that they simply knew very little about the other population sharing their territory. And that's not actually very surprising if you think about it. Children aren't generally interested in politics, right? And if they exist within a social structure that is entirely built around one specific worldview, and if they attend a school system that promotes one specific outlook without giving much time to the other, there is little reason why they would think that there's any more to know. That is, of course, until they're a bit older, and at that stage, preconceptions and stereotypes about the other might already have taken root. Um, and one of my friends, Kiva, who is Catholic and went to Catholic school, I remember being eight and asking my friend Christian, why Kiva didn't go to the same school as us. And he said, oh, he doesn't know, but his mum and dad says that that's the school that people go to who don't like the bands. Okay. And like, that's a hugely multi-layered thing. But right. as a child, I went, oh, she doesn't like music. And just right. nothing else. But of course it means that, well, his parents in trying to explain to him went, well, she doesn't like the bands and neither does her family. Right. So that's a loyalist thing. That's a unionist right. thing. That's something that Protestants do. And she didn't like it. But like, it's, I remember being you know, years later sitting in a classroom talking about cross-community things. And it like being like, it's just dropping, whatever reason, that popped into my head, and I went, oh my goodness, Kiva was a Catholic. Identity in Northern Ireland is further complicated by the notorious tags used to identify the different communities, Catholic and Protestant. As we've discussed before on the podcast, global media tends to presume, because of these tags, that the conflict in Northern Ireland was a religious war, that people were killing each other and forming paramilitary groups simply because they disagreed with the other's theology. Of course, as we've seen, this was not at all the case. The conflict in Northern Ireland was about territory and political control. One side wanted Northern Ireland to rejoin the Republic, and the other wanted it to remain in the UK. 
But that is not to say that there isn't a religious overlay on that division. Broadly speaking, most Catholics in the territory are descended from Gaelic-Irish natives, while most Protestants are descended from 17th century colonial settlers from England or Scotland. As you've heard from Connor and Hannah, this still lingers on even in how people interpret names. An Irish name like Niamh or Quiva or Sinead or Siobhan would typically indicate that you were a Catholic. A particularly English or Scottish name like Alistair or Charles or Elizabeth might probably indicate that you're a Protestant. That is to say, religion in Northern Ireland actually references a profound colonial dimension of the territory's history, and until recently enough, an ethnic dimension too. Remember, right up until the mid-20th century, Victorian-style attitudes towards Irish Catholics were still rife across the English-speaking world. This is an attitude that did not simply consider Irish Catholicism as a set of theological practices, but as an inherent, almost biological identity. For much of recent history, Irish Catholics were invariably presented across the world as congenitally inferior human beings, as quintessentially lower class, as morally bankrupt, and as representative of uncivilised and even malicious, treasonous behaviour. Protestant Anglo-Saxon identity, on the other hand, was promoted throughout the English-speaking world as a kind of ethnic elite among white people. You might think of the infamous Wasps of New England in the United States, a label which still carries considerable ethnic cachet there. And think of how central Protestantism is to that ethnic label. In fact, a lot of those stereotypes can ultimately be traced back to Ireland, where the basic template of Catholic bad, Protestant good was for centuries an essential justification for Britain's colonial project on the island. Before independence, Protestants disproportionately occupied positions of power, while Catholics were overwhelmingly represented by poor, rural, agricultural labourers. Protestants were more likely to speak standard English and be versed in English ways of life. Catholics were more likely to speak Irish, and when they did speak English, they were more likely to do so with a heavy and frequently ridiculed accent. For centuries, this would have just seemed like the natural order of the world in Ireland. Ethno-religious discrimination on the island, after all, only seemed to mirror similar class discrimination in Britain or America. Many people would have comfortably believed that society was like this because that's just how the world worked. Unsurprisingly then, after the southern 26 counties gained independence from the UK in 1922, there was a massive and radical backlash against that worldview. In the south, Catholicism was given pride of place in the new free state. Catholics were the new measure of respectability, while Protestants were vilified as heretics and representatives of an alien culture. Soon, with the free state government handing over control of public services to Rome, the whole state sank into a quasi-theocracy. In Northern Ireland, however, which remained part of the UK, that old world order, so familiar, so ostensibly natural, continued for decades. Catholics there were still seen as a boorish underclass, even more dangerous now because of their nationalist politics aligning them with this rogue state across the border. Protestants were still seen as representing civility, reason, and loyalty to Britain. For decades, Protestants controlled government across Northern Ireland, even in majority Catholic areas. Their worldview was the official worldview of the territory, and their values were promoted as a standard that should be aspired to. Further complicating matters, even though the conflict was not about religion, faith did play a role in culturally segregating people. Remember, back in the 1960s and 70s, religious beliefs and practices all over the English-speaking world were much more hard-line than they are today. 
Catholics, for instance, refused to use contraception, since it had been forbidden by Rome, meaning that they often had far more children than they could afford, which contributed to spiralling poverty. Some Protestant denominations were biblical literists, denouncing evolution and blaming natural disasters on a wrathful God. Some of these beliefs still proliferate. John Carson, a DUP counsellor, recently blamed the outbreak of COVID-19 on the legalisation of same-sex marriage. Catholics might have fallen to their knees at different points during the day to recite the rosary. Protestants sometimes demanded that playgrounds be shut under lock and key on Sundays, so everyone would have to respect the Sabbath. Catholic children making their way to First Communion in little white dresses might have been watched with confusion and mistrust through the windows of Protestant neighbours. Protestant children attending Bible reading classes might have been seen as fanatical by the Catholic family next door. That's all to say that religious persuasion at this point very much did demand a different way of life, and it heightened and intensified the cultural, ethnic and political differences already inherent in the colonial divide at a very intimate level. It's important to note here that we are talking about stereotypes. In reality, there was a huge crossover in terms of politics and identity between Catholics and Protestants. Many people then, as now, could not give two figs for identity, be it ethnic, religion, or political. More than that, there was a huge cohort of people who considered integration between the two sides as a fundamental social goal. Yet at the same time, those stereotypes continued to constitute a sort of quote-unquote, reality for many people on both sides, largely because that reality was actively promoted by certain cultural authorities on both sides of the border that wanted to maintain division in the territory. Wait, I remember being 11 and asking my mum, so am I a Catholic or a Protestant? Because I didn't right. know what the difference was. Yeah. And then like talking to her about the differences and it being a religious thing, so we would talk about like the different church traditions as opposed to actually going... Um, yeah, so, you know, like, what is going on, yeah. he, like, in this small place where I live, I was more concerned about, you know, the differences between, you know, transubstantiation, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I was, like, interested yeah. in that because of who I am as a person, um, so it's interesting then, because I, so, because, just because of the area where I grew up, there aren't a lot of Catholic families, yeah. so I didn't really know any Catholic people really I suppose not by any reason just because of geography really until I was in secondary school and um, I did music in Belfast School of Music and on Saturday mornings you had to go to like orchestra or band or whatever and um, that's where sort of a lot of cross-community action yeah. actually happened, which is really interesting yeah. because I didn't realise it yeah. at the time. I just knew that the other girl who died down was called Neve, and yeah. she went to St. Pat's, like, yeah. and it didn't mean anything. It was just someone who went to a different school. Yeah. Um, and I think that sort of shows then that identity whenever becomes something more tangible whenever you start to question it and think yeah. about it mm. and actually pick it apart yeah. a bit more because, like... You just growing up, you're like, well, people are either like me or they're not, and people yeah. just you don't you don't, there isn't this huge sense of otherness. Yeah. Interestingly, the stereotypes of identity in Northern Ireland were so overbearing and for so long that people who felt more tolerant to the other side had to practice a certain level of discretion sometimes. Younger people, who had perhaps not lived through the worst of the conflict, and often had no interest in, or particularly profound knowledge of, the supposed differences between them and their neighbours, 
were obliged to exist in the same divided society without really understanding why things were like that. Dad was brought up in a relatively, like, a unionist home, but, like, very quiet unionist. It's sort of that they don't really do politics. <laughs> There's no DUP in that household. But, so for Dad growing up, even though we grew up just outside the maze prison, right. like, they were bad people who did things on TV, and yeah, they were Catholics, and you knew that they were Catholics, and you could see all of it going around you, but, like, he was shocked when he went to university in, like, Jordanstown, and or Coleraine, and started meeting people who didn't support Northern Ireland as right, the football team, right, okay. because that had never even crossed his... He, he, he says, like, one night they were at a party, and even they're having a discussion about all this goings on, and dad being dad tried to lighten it and went oh well it's just one thing we can all agree on it's we want northern ireland to win the football yeah. and half of the room went no and the other half of the room the dairy went, girls it's board. literally yeah, yeah it literally feels like an episode of dairy girls and that's when it suddenly so i mean he was far more aware of than i will have been growing up right but still was not that it's a good thing or a bad thing it was just sort of kept removed from it right and again part of that's growing up in the country and it depends where you are as they so often do sports teams have become a correlative for identity in northern ireland Traditionally, the Northern Irish soccer team has enjoyed unionist support. Remember, lots of nationalists don't recognise Northern Ireland at all, and would thus support the Republic of Ireland team. GAA sports like Gaelic football and hurling, which played a huge part in the nationalist revival during the Irish Revolution, are traditionally seen as taboo for Protestants. There are some exceptions, though. The Irish rugby team represents the whole island, but even they have had to adopt an alternative anthem at their matches, to include those who do not identify with the Republic's national anthem, Aaron Navian. I think as well, the generational gap between our parents and us, like our oh, parents huge. grew up with the news every night, being <laughs> like there's been bombs and well, people yeah. have died every single day for 30 years. That's going to affect <laughs> someone, yeah. whether or not it's just you being like, our country's a mess or being, you know, actively involved or yeah. like emotionally affected by it, whatever. It's very different mm. because after Good Friday, like there there were incidents, for example, Uma oh, and Bambridge so as well, you know, but they are so lessened. See, this is a, people criticize Northern Ireland so much, but like the Good Friday Agreement, it saved lives a hundred times over and it gave people a place to start. And yeah, our government's not amazing, but <laughs> to put it lightly, but coming from what it did, I'm really proud of where I'm from and not just like the shiny bits of it. Like I'm really yeah. proud to be from Belfast. I'm from Northern Ireland and the identity that comes tangled up in that is a cross-cultural one. And it's one when I look back on like the place where I'm from and I can be horrified by what's happened here, but also be like, yeah, yeah. It's my place as well. Coming from a unionist background, Connor and Hannah have confronted one of the deepest taboos in Northern Ireland's traditional divide, the Irish language. We talked about this in Jennifer's previous report. Lots of the original colonists who settled Northern Ireland would actually have adopted Irish, and they would have spoken it for centuries. But during the Irish Revolution, the language became associated with nationalist and anti-British politics, and became the object of mistrust for many in the unionist community. Since the peace agreement, lots of unionists and nationalists alike have returned to Irish as an apolitical piece of their heritage, and enrolment in Irish language classes has soared. And so you are both Irish speakers, so... Haha! <laughs> 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 learners, Irish learners. learners. <laughs> so what, what sparked that interest in the Irish language? What got you to want to take classes and to speak this language and to, to have it? <laughs> My political awakening, sort of at 16, 17, and... I did A-level history as well, and doing that, you, there's a unit or a 
course that you do where you do 100 years of Irish nationalism. I've always loved history and sort of felt like there was a real gap in my knowledge. Like doing that sweep of 100 years from Ireland being joined to the Union to the sort of fight for the Home Rule Bill and then beyond up into the early 1900s really opened my eyes. So I sort of became very sort of a romantic nationalist. Just sort of started to grasp political theory and stuff and was then able to look at the, like our politics here through different lenses that actually were something beyond the tribal politics that you used to see on TV. Yeah, sort of became more interested in it and more aware of it and met people who spoke as their first language. And I right. thought that was so cool. I did a module in my final year of um on Irish the politics of Irish literature and a lot of it was in yoga and I sort of was like I could give this a go I was like hey it's time for me to begin my journey did it feel like a part of your culture that you were missing or like didn't have access to yet so yeah because I grew up in the east (laughs) you don't even see it written down anywhere really you would see it if you accidentally slicked on to um and you'd be like oh you know they're speaking this different language, but it's still in our accent. That's the right. thing that always got me, is you don't have to put on an accent to speak it because the accent that we have is the one that the language is spoken in, which right. I think is really cool. Connor's interest in the Irish language actually started when he was living abroad in Uganda. He started trying to learn Dutch to communicate better with the people he lived with, but he was surprised when they asked him why he didn't speak Irish. And one of them said, why are you trying to learn Dutch? And I was like, you know, because I'm speaking to you, they said, but we speak English. I'm like, no, no, but it's important to know your own language. And they went, oh, so you speak Irish. Oof. And like a penny dropped. And it wasn't that I'd never considered it before. It was just like... Something clicked. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I can't even speak my own language. Um, and being 4,000 miles away, like, on the other side of the planet, I went, I need to start. So did what everyone does, download Duolingo. I was like, this is it. <laughs> Going to start learning Irish. But I was doing these Irish classes and suddenly things started to fall into place. Like, I live in Dromore and from We Were No Age, Dad always says that meant Big Ridge. And then you're taught that, well, your drum, the ridge, is the spine. Okay. So the reason drumlins, the geographical feature drumlins are called drumlins, is because they're pools of ridges, pools of spines across the countryside, these drumlins. And I'm like, wow, it just started to open up yeah. stuff. And from a conversation I had with some Dutch people in Uganda about like yeah. language and my own, I was like being plunged into a world of, this was all new. And like my contact with Irish is limited. The only time I saw it or heard it, was yeah. we spent all of our summers in like Donegal or right. in Waterford or in Wexford mm-hmm. or, or anywhere. Like we, we just did weird camping trips around the, the country. I told my auntie who always says, it doesn't sound very, you know, it doesn't flow very nicely. And I'm like, it's just because you speak English <laughs> and it doesn't sound it like English. And I talked to my granddad about it, who is a man of very, very few words. And I told him, oh, I'm thinking, I'm going to, like, I'm starting Irish. And he was like, uh, and he counted to ten. Oh, Irish. Yeah. Huh. And I went, you know it? And he went, oh, no, no, no. And I That's still yeah. don't oh know. Don't know. Where that came from. Where it came from. Wow. Because he wouldn't, because he's, he just doesn't just disclose that information.
I started learning oh, three years ago, three years ago, um, actually properly going to classes. And then about 18 months ago, my dad went, I've been pressed and started. So my dad started classes, talked about it, and then he of course brought that up with his mother and my granny. And um, about a year ago now, we were sitting and granny came into the room yeah. with dad and just went, come us a talk to. So how are you? In southern, like very, very southern sort yeah. of dad. And he touched that what? <laughs> and she was like, that's not the right answer. <laughs> He's like, what? He's like, yeah. he, she had been on a bus tour with the girls from church and one of the girls had been raised uh, or had gone to school in Dublin, like a boarding school in Dublin, and it had come up on part of their bus tour. They were in a skillin, and on the way back, it got mentioned. And my granny said, "Oh, my son and my grandson are doing." It. And she said, "Well, I have to teach you something." Last week, she'd written like a card, or I yeah. sent a text message, or something. Anyway, she'd she'd phonetically written out, "Thank you." You start to see those little bits people actually do open and change mm-hmm. the language. As soon as you get your foot in the door with it, yeah, you have that label yeah. stuck to oh, you, immediately. and it's in. It's so interesting seeing how many people are drawn to it as well. Even Kieran, that's what he associates with us as well. Yeah. He's like, Ugh. and he hates it because he's like, "You're you Protestants. You shouldn't be able to." I know more than I do. Sorry, come to class with us. <laughs> but like, I don't know. One of the interesting things about learning Irish in Northern Ireland is that the Irish traditionally spoken there is quite specific to the region. Somewhat ironically, the ancient province of Ulster, or Ulla, was one of the last places to be colonised with plantations in Ireland. Until then, in the early 17th century, it had remained a bastion of the Irish culture and language, long after areas further south were becoming anglicised. The Ulster dialect of Irish is thus very deeply rooted in the language's history. But because so few people in Northern Ireland spoke Irish over the last hundred years since partition, it was very rarely heard in the Republic, outside of County Donegal, one of the few Ulster Gaeltachs that did not remain in the Union after partition. The fact that there are different dialects of it, and the dialect huh. that we're learning... <laughs> I have never been so, is like... Ulster <laughs> yeah. It is It is spoken in... The this part, this of the part of the world. <laughs> and if you go to Cork and try to speak it, they're not going to really oh, get what so you're saying. Annoying. Or you go to Dublin and you try and speak what, how we pronounce it, they'll say we're pronouncing it wrong. Yeah. But because yeah. it is a different dialect. And that makes it, again, really cool because it's not that you're taking something that wasn't yours or something yeah. that maybe wasn't accessible to you. You're actually taking, like, you're literally, like, stepping into shoes that were already sitting at the door <laughs> yeah. is a really good way to put it. That means that your identity then yeah. is still, you still get to be in the North and you still get to be Northern Irish. Mm. Yeah. And that little distinction is really nice because yeah. there is a difference between being from Dublin or being from Belfast. Yeah. We did a census in 2011, and I remember Dad sitting all of us down, but after we'd finished it and Dad had sealed it up and put it back in the envelope, he said, it's interesting that none of you see you're British. Right. But it didn't make any sense for us. It was like, because we're not from Britain. Right. Okay. Do you know, and my brothers would all still see themselves as very much Northern Irish. Like, they right. would be far more unionist in tendency. So growing up here, the Irish part, you can't escape. And the older I've got, the more it has become. Like at one stage, it was just Irish, no questions asked. Right. And the older I get, the more I go, oh, it's Irish, but there's yeah. wee asterisks on the end. Yeah, like, and yeah. part of that is actually because I'm learning Irish and I'm learning Ulster Irish. If it wasn't so politically charged, Connor explains, he would be happy to describe himself simply as an Ulsterman, an identity that for him can cross political and historical boundaries, but still maintains a unique sense of place. I have far more in common with 
those friends and people you meet in classes from Donegal than I have friends common from yeah. people from like around Dublin area. And yeah. don't get me wrong, we're all Irish. But yeah. like, there's just a cultural, and part of it's the accent, part of yeah. it's because we sound similar. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I sense of humor sense is a wee humor bit is different. Definitely different, but the way we speak. So like, I have never been more aware of my like Irish identity in its Irish context right. as I have in. And part of that's because every time you meet a dub, they're like, "Oh, where are you from?" And you go, "County Down." And then the next question is, "Are you Protestant or Catholic?" Or every time you meet an English person, they're like, right. "Where are you from?" And you're like, "Ireland." And they go. Which bit, if they know there's two right, bits, or yeah. wasn't there something that happened there a couple of years ago? <laughs> so it always ends up in like this frustrated, yeah, I am Irish, but you feel like you're defending yourself, but yeah. you have no reason to. I had someone quite recently tell me on Twitter that um, someone who is English and from Liverpool, and I said, we were talking about Brexit, as you do, and... <laughs> about like people English people applying for Irish passports and if you have Irish parents right. or grandparents you're able to apply for an Irish passport yeah. and I said well you know I just have an Irish passport because that's what I am and yeah. they said sure you're not really Irish and yeah. I was <laughs> like it's like someone's punching the gut I was like <laughs> How, you can't tell me that because yeah. I'm an Irish citizen. I have an Irish passport. And whilst you can't apply for it if your grandparents are Irish, I live on the I live Born in the here. land. Live here. Like, yeah. Love being told that by someone outside of it was yeah. I don't even know the emotions that came with it because yes, it's like, yes, I'm from Northern Ireland, but I am Irish and when it comes down to that, yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not British. For listeners who maybe wouldn't be so familiar with politics and culture and identity here, yeah. what would be the difference between identifying as Northern Irish, um, sort of like claiming that I'm from this northern, the northern part of the <laughs> island, as opposed to an Ulster identity uh, in the sense of like an Ulsterman? I think historically <laughs> speaking, Unionists in most descriptions of Unionists didn't call Northern Ireland Northern Ireland. They called it Ulster. So when you go back, like even to before, like the Troubles and stuff, oh, it yeah. was Ulster, and it's Ulster is British, and it's Ulster. and part of that's simply because there was and there has been for years. I mean, going back before even the plantation, there is a sense of distinctiveness that we Ulster people like to have. We were the most Gaelic kingdom, and then we were the most planted kingdom, or part so part of the kingdom. You know? so like there is an exceptionalism that exists here that even after partition, unionists were buying into at the very highest levels of that. So they said they are from Ulster. They referred to this place as Ulster. It was Ulster Day. It was the Ulster Covenant. The Ulster Unionist Party. This was about Ulster being British. It was a very much a sense of, we aren't Irish. The deep irony, of course, is the further we move from that statement, the more that a lot of people here will start to question what that actually Mm -hmm. means, especially in light of geopolitical events it's also it's closeness to scotland as well yeah. comes into question whenever you bring the ulster question because like ulster scots is the dialect that would have been spoken yeah. so we we're talking about irish as a language ulster scots the dialect that would have been spoken and would have been spoken so in is in lots of places as well like the cultural distinctiveness of ulster also extends to how english is spoken there The accents in the north parts of Ireland, both within and without the border, have historically been heavily influenced by Scottish Gaelic and later by Scottish dialects of English. During the plantations, lots of settlers were English-speaking lowland Scots, and they spoke Scots, a very old Anglo-Saxon tongue that is still central to Scottish culture. When transplanted to the Ulster plantations, Scots evolved into a new way of speaking known as Ulster Scots. 
Many people consider Ulster Scots to be a language in its own right, equivalent to Irish or French or German. Others say it's simply a strongly accented version of English, or a dialect of English at best. Like so much in Northern Ireland, this very discussion is replete with political subtext. Is yeah, it not I, even its own, considered its own language? Uh, that's a, hard that's a big one. That's, Scots is yeah. far more easy to convince people as a language. Also, Scots is difficult because we're from here and everyone likes to fight about everything. And also, right. to find somebody nowadays, like we have friends, they would be from Ulster Scots homes. Like, they take part like in piping championship. Their family is still in Scotland, they can see them. So they're also Scottishness, but they would struggle to read written Ulster Scots because okay. it's been... And I'd actually, I, from a linguistic point of view, I want to protect Ulster Scots as a thing. It's a really brilliant cultural artifact. When also, it comes yeah, to me questions calling, of language and calling funding, it a dialect actually isn't me insulting no, it. I it's know, just because it's, like, it's such a contested oh, thing. It's so, contested. It's, it's so like, there's been so Scots. many, so many political meetings yeah. about it. Like, our government has fallen out about like, it a hundred times, you know. Dad works at the library and they when they publish official documents, they printed everything in English, in Irish, and in Ulster Scots. Right. And, like, I think that's great. But I also, when you see an Ulster Scots document, you do get a sense of, that's how we speak here. And yeah. that's important and needs preserved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another major element of Northern Irish identity is the shared experience of violence and division over many decades, something which, for the most part, neither the Republic of Ireland nor the rest of the UK can really relate to. You know, there are parts of culture down there that, like, they're never going to be able to relate to our culture in the way that we're living in a, like, like, post-conflict society, you know, and, like, that comes with all the baggage that it does and all the shaping that it does and how separate we are in terms of how we react to Mm -hmm. elections and stuff, how informed we are by each other's news and stuff. There, There is a bit of a difference and it's not a bad thing and it shouldn't be so contested. Jennifer asked Connor and Hannah whether they had received any negative blowback from either community about their learning of Irish. One of the most notable sentiments they related is something that is all too familiar to Irish learners in the Republic. The question of, why bother? The most negative response I got was from a very close friend of mine, but I was accused of cultural appropriation from this particular friend, and I found that fascinating. At the time, I didn't respond, I just went, okay, and kind of left it. But he's from a mixed family okay so like his mom's a catholic his dad's a protestant he's been raised with no faith he has nothing to do with anything he goes to masses when he has to he goes to church services when he has to he hates religion but if he had the choice he'd be able to vote conservative but you can't in our area so he doesn't you know and whether that was just anger but it was the only time i've ever seen someone say something they went you're culturally appropriating and but it hit me hard because i went okay and that was a question that sort of stuck with me. In terms of negative responses, it's not so much negative responses, it's the classic, like, here thing of people kind of going, what's the point? There's a, um, she's a Catholic girl, and I met her at an event, and we were chatting away, and I just mentioned, um, I've actually just come from an Irish class. And she went, oh, why? And I was like, because okay. I'm learning Irish? And she was like, why would you do that? It's a dead language. Uh, like, some of my co-workers, so, you know, whenever it's a bit quiet, and you just have a chat, just, like, we comments and stuff, like oh, well, Hannah's learning Irish. You know, that's sort of just from people who are from the tradition where you would speak Irish but don't care about it. You know, okay. that's sort of like a bit passive-aggressive, I suppose. I also, like someone else who I work with, just like so unionist. Okay. So it was just like, 
why do you want to spend all our money making bilingual signs everywhere? I was like, I want to, I want to take your wages, sir, and I want to use them to make the signs, and I'm going to make the signs out of money. And they're going to have English on them as well, and it's going to be amazing. Um, For listeners who wouldn't be aware of the context, um, that bilingual sign uh, comment is a reference to the Irish Language Act, which has been quite controversial here, and... It is a big part of what triggered the collapse of Stormont in 2017. Okay, so I mean, historically, in like Scotland, because the um, the Gaels, these ones like the Highlands, refused to learn English, or if they did refuse to speak it, the state in that case had to learn Gaelic, or at least enough to give orders or to say, this is what we want to tax people in that language. Um, so there's a, certainly there a kind of a connotation that exists around almost people using it as a tool. But I think here partially because it was almost universally rejected yeah that doesn't exist in quite the same way so the cultural appropriation thing i've actually felt it more with the sports side of things okay, so with yeah. language i have no like I, i've never encountered that yeah. part and again i can totally honest i would and i would if someone was to say to me i don't like that you're doing that because you're taking part of my culture i would love to ask them okay why why do you think because right? there's no part of me that feels like i'm doing something alien it feels very much a part of who i'm yeah. part of that from the tradition that I've grown up in as an Ulster Presbyterian is that like <laughs> growing up the stories that we heard from mum and dad and granny and grandpa and things are about here and yeah. because our family's been here longer than we know right, like in yeah, every single direction yeah. and there'll be people in there who are planters and people in there who are native and there's going to be people in there from Scotland and England and all over the place but the stories have always been about here and that's a sense of being from mm-hmm. here. Identity in Northern Ireland is so complex that, as Connor and Hannah explain, it can be completely different depending on which block you live on. Cities like Belfast are splintered with so-called interface areas, where the two communities are situated hard by each other, often segregated by huge, bomb-proof fences known as peace lines. A few minutes away from those interface areas, though, it might seem like you're living in another city entirely. Like, for most of my young life, was shielded from it in some degree or another, like, yeah, and we, that like that's family, such a privilege as well, privilege. which is no, something is that I've definitely realised like, in later life, being able to be like, actually, the fact that I hadn't have didn't have to face my own yeah. identity for so but long like, is such a privilege. Because the by the time I was able to, to actually like engage with it, it's a safe place, and I'm sort of old enough to sort of start grappling with yeah. it, as opposed to being brought up in an area where there is trouble or where yeah. there like where it can actually be something that affects like how you walk down the street or yeah. like who you yeah, hang yeah. out with or what you're allowed to do. Yeah. Had I lived like ten minutes down the road from where I live, I would like that's where all the rioting happens on the twelfth right. of July. Like you know, the reason why I'm able to be a little bit detached and a little bit like I'm going to discuss how I found my political yeah, identity yeah, yeah. when I was seventeen yeah. is because of the privilege yeah. that I was able yeah. to have in yeah. my upbringing and stuff. Northern Irish politics class is part of it. You can't get past yeah. that. But actually, sometimes what plays more is your perception of your class. Right. So like, especially with like loyalist communities, because there's this perception of being maybe on top in certain areas, even yeah. though you're you're the bottom of the social ladder, right. you're still above that other. I'm coming from a place where I've been afforded, like Hannah, the ability to take a step back in the yeah. breather, where I have so many friends who've been brought up in homes, and actually some of them will be incredibly wealthy and come from. But because of the, the home situation, for yeah. one reason or another, their politics has been... Hit the ground running, yeah, basically. Yeah, you've been raised, this is the way it is. This is the way that people... Like, we have a very good friend of ours who um, will often claim that because of her identity, um, that makes her working class. And So elaborate on that. What does that mean? What, what is she saying? 
she's tried because all she's Catholics from one, and working yeah, class. Yeah, she's trying to say all Catholics working class. And at one stage, a friend of ours who is also a Catholic and also lives in a nice postcode yeah. made the comment, if that's the case, which one of your two homes are working class? The right. one in Belfast, the one in the south of Italy. Right. And I think that exposed, like, it's a little bit of an insight into how self-perception matters here, especially right. in regards to class politics. Would you think it's realistic to expect in your lifetime, our lifetime, more people in this corner, this northeastern corner <laughs> of this island the tricky bit. would be identifying as Northern Irish in the sense that a Northern Irish identity would be outside of the you know, Catholic-Protestant divide or as something that bridges both of those identities and holds them together as one whole identity? Mm-hmm. When I think of Northern Irish identity, I think of an alliance voter. Mm-hmm. I think of someone who genuinely means so well for this country and sees a better thing but doesn't want to get too involved in the okay. sticky bits. And I don't okay. think it's a bad thing. That's not the negative, but they, they will, they want, um, I think most of us want a normal country, a yeah. functioning place, somewhere that works. And I think that at the minute, the Northern Irishness, and I'm speaking huge general terms, often goes, for me certainly, hand in hand with a sense of light unionism, like the EU, probably, yeah. um, and was happy enough with how everything was because no one's killing themselves. Yeah. Things are getting slowly better. Yes, they're dreadful up on the hill, aren't they? You know, they're making all these dreadful decisions, but we can all come together okay. as the children of the peace process. And I think I, I can relate to the hopefulness in that. So in that sense, um, so for people from more of a British background or a loyalist background, identifying as, as Northern Irish is a way of distancing yourself from Irish. It's, it's a way. It's a way of distancing yourself from both traditions. I okay. think when people say Northern Irish, it means they don't like the twelfth. They know what St Patrick's Day is. Yeah. Um, you know, they probably go to Donegal on holiday. Yeah. They're probably doctors or teachers, and they yeah. do quite well in the yeah. middle classes. So it's like a middle class holding your nose yeah. at uh, more. Not necessarily a holding your nose. I think that would well, be. Um, well, I'm going to say that it's a very watered down okay. way yeah. of doing it. You wouldn't. Holding your nose means doing something. It's very that's polite, like, true. oh, that's, you know, we're too you just, polite for that. Yeah. It's not holding your nose, it's turning your face away. Okay. Yes. You know, it's walking down the street and just looking so, in the other yeah, direction. When there's bonfires and rioting, they go, oh, that's dreadful, isn't it? Instead of going, actually, there's a reason why people who identify themselves in that mm-hmm. particular community as loyalists and as orange or as, as, as yeah. unionists go, there's something being taken away from me or there's something that I'm not being allowed. You know, so instead of engaging with what would you could argue is their own community... Mm-hmm. They're going, that's just something poor people do. It's sort of, yeah. It's like and a, that angers me yeah. because that's not a good enough answer to the question of what do you do about the Irish problem as yeah. we have it here? I look at Northern Ireland as a place and as a concept, as a beacon of hope, really. And that might seem a little bit weird for me to say whenever you look at literally everything that happens here all the time. We are... We are only what 20 22 years away from a good friday agreement i see this sort of slow snaking meandering hopefulness and the people that we all just keep on going and would deal with it and is that not hopeful is that not hope (laughs) and you can give off about your alliance voters and your watered down identity (laughs) i just get frustrated i know and like that's good we should still get frustrated and we should still voice complaints but when you zoom out and look at the big picture of it all it's all gonna be okay and you know what we're all in quarantine right now so it doesn't even Matter where you're at.
And for now, that's all from us. A huge thanks once again to Jennifer Smith for her reporting. If you enjoyed the episode, why not head over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport, where you can become a supporter of the podcast today and gain access to our whole archive of half-pint bonus content. In the meantime, keep an eye out for season four, which is coming very, very soon. I'll say slán and stay safe from my own isolation pod and leave the last word to Connor and Hannah. Slánish, I guess, uh, a guest gift, an Irish passport. You're listening to the Irish passport. Girl, my agate. Girl, my agate. Slánish. Who would you get a pee? I would love a cup. Yeah.